In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The BFA Dance Program at the Peabody Conservatory of the John Hopkins University prepares students to be at the forefront of dance innovation through performance, choreographic, and critical historical and theoretical exploration. Studying dance at John Hopkins, one of the world's premier research institutions, gives students the opportunity to make connections between dance, science, technology, and the humanities. Peabody students take courses in modern dance, African expressions, ballet, somatic approaches to movement, choreography, and dance of social justice, perform in a pre-professional student dance company, and collaborate with world-renowned guest artists. From the first year, students have the opportunity to choreograph their own pieces. At Peabody, we welcome a broad range of creative voices and prepare student artists for success in the real world. Submit your application by December 1st. Learn more at peabody.jhu.edu slash dancebfa. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On today's episode of Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Marina Harz, author of The Boy from Kiev, the life story of the great choreographer Alexei Rodmansky. We talked to Marina about her own journey to writing dance, how she came to admire and love Rodmansky's work, and what her process was researching and developing the book. You can purchase The Boy from Kiev at your local bookstore or at the link in this episode's description. Marina, thank you so much for joining us on what we were just saying before we started recording is maybe the busiest week of your life. <laughs> so we're, we're going to take it back to a simpler time since we've never had you on. We want to hear before we get into anything about the book, um, how you first uh, started to fall in love with dance and then when you first started to write about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. First of all, I I love your podcast. So it's an honor. We've been wanting to have you on for so long, but we've actually had this like on our calendar for so long because we knew it was coming and we're like, we will wait for that. So (laughs) that's why. (laughs) And I've been waiting forever for the book to to be out too. So it's perfect. Um, How did I get interested in dance? Well, I have a background in music. Um, I grew up playing the piano pretty intensively. And uh, I did study ballet as a little girl, but I was absolutely, I had no talent. Um, What I did have was musicality, which I think is something that has really come in handy as I developed uh, my interest in dance, which came on the late side. I was working at the New Yorker magazine as a fact checker. Mm -hmm. And um, I had I was also doing translations on the side, literary translations. Right. And I kind of thought that that was the direction I would go in. But I started checking a lot of Joan Acocella's reviews. And I just found her way of writing about dance so visceral and so exciting that it made me want to see more dance. So it's mm-hmm. it's a kind of interesting way of entering the, the art. And as I went to see more dance, 
I felt my musical background clicking into place and I was going to see a lot of city ballet. So the relationship between music and dance was so clear in my head. And it really made me want to write for the first time. I had never really, I mean, I'd written because I was a literature major, but I never had thought, oh, I want to be a writer. And mm -hmm. so that combined with my translation background and the desire to actually translate what I was seeing on stage in a way that a reader could um, visualize it without necessarily seeing the performance, because that's what you do when you're a reviewer, made me really want to write and analyze what I was seeing and what I was feeling. Dance mm -hmm. made me excited in a way, an intellectual way, that nothing else had really accessed before. So it made me want to see everything I could, as many different kinds of dance. And I, I audited a lot of classes, actually, at Barnard, taught by Lynn Garofola, who was incredibly generous and let me sit in on her classes because I knew I needed a background. Mm -hmm. And then I started taking ballet because I knew I needed a vocabulary and I needed to know how it worked. And, you know, I started with little things and then I went on to bigger things. Oh, I love I love I um you just mentioning the the way you got into dance but I think that that's what writing on dance does for me too. I mean granted that wasn't my entry point to dance but like when I when I remember when I started to read Croce and I was like this makes me want to go back and revisit this per this video I've seen of this performance and you know good dance writing expands your own love of of the art form outside of just strictly sitting and watching it. So I, I love that that was what Absolutely. inspired you. And everyone brings a different um, element to their writing. Like with Croce, it was her immense literary film, art, historical mm -hmm. background. So she could bring so much context to bear. Mm -hmm. With Joan, it was this incredibly visceral writing style, like so direct. I think David Remnick once said that she writes about dance as if she were writing about a boxing match. And, that's, <laughs> and I feel that. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, at least I felt at, at first, and I hope it, it comes through, it was this combination of how dance and music interrelate. Hmm. I wonder what were some of the first things that you started seeing once you started to have these ideas, like maybe I do want to get more into dance. What were some of those entry points for you? On stage. Well, there were there were a few. I mean, definitely um, Concerto Barocco is a ballet that is just uh, by Balanchine uh, that it just you. I think it was one of the first times that I felt that I was seeing the score before my eyes and I could hear, oh, this is when the other violin comes in. And oh, mm -hmm. this is how this figure I could like literally see the notes in my head. Mm -hmm. ah. And that was very exciting um, to me. Another, and it's it's not something that's unique to ballet. Like I love flamenco. And one of the things that's so exciting about flamenco is it's less seeing the music and more seeing a body at the service of the music. That's be, mm -hmm. It's like the music takes over the body. Mm -hmm. And then you see the music and the voice. It's this comment. Also, I have a an interest in the voice. My husband is a opera singer. So the voice is another thing that really excites me. So the seeing the vibrations of the voice and the vibrations of the body kind of riding the same wave and having this conversation back and forth uh, is something that I find extraordinary. I feel the same way about Indian dance, um, even though classical dance, even though I, you know, obviously, it's something much more foreign to me uh, you know you you can spend a lifetime trying to learn all the technique and the the musical modes and all of this but there was also the words well in flamenco too but in in indian dance the dancer is responding not just to the music and the and the tonality and the and, and the sound of the and the rhythm but also to what's actually being sung about and is depicting right. what what um, is being said, which is interesting because Mark Morris also often uses vocal music. And I feel the same way about his music. Mm. He shows you in some way in, in his operas and in his vocal pieces like Gloria, what the music is about. Mm -hmm. mm. That's, I mean, I think, yeah, that's what great dance does. I mean, I ran into you 
at Russell Jansen's retirement. And we were just, we had a little conversation just specifically about that, that like when you, there's nothing better than listening to a score of a ballet you love and you can just, the steps just pour forth in your brain. Like I, I was telling, saying to you that I felt like I could, I remember every step of Ruby's. Of course, I never danced the women's roles. I never danced the lead. I just did my my little core part, but I remember everything because it's so musical. Yeah, and I feel like yeah. that it like creates a map in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I yeah. saw a former city ballet dancer posted on Instagram. She was at the reunion and she was on stage and she was so excited that she was actually doing the closing of uh, diamonds because she had always been in the core and she was singing the music to herself mm -hmm. and she remembered every step. Yeah. Um, and that's often when I see videos online before I even click on the music, I know what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Isn't that yeah. funny? So yeah. 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 So good. I also wonder what your experience was like once you started taking ballet in order to um, create the, not create, but in order to familiarize yourself with the vocabulary, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. I mean, as I said, I have absolutely no gifts. So it was really research. And now mm -hmm. it's become a meditation, also a, for a form of exercise and a meditation and a focus. But I think what it really taught me is I understood better, can't never fully understand, but what turnout meant, mm -hmm. what pointing your, your foot means, what straightening your leg means. I mean, these are things that mean something to everybody, but they don't really mean the same thing as they mean to dancers until you feel it in your body. Mm -hmm. I actually took some point classes and understanding the straightening of the leg in point and the strength of the ankle was something that was really revelatory for me because it's n it's something beyond straightening. And you understand yeah. the structure of the body, how it rises from the bottom and stretches in all directions and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it definitely helps, helped, I am sure it still helps in Try in understanding what's happening when what I what I see is not like oh it makes me feel this way. Why does it make me feel this way? You know. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> but let's let's go into the world of the book a little bit. I want to hear the, the about your your first experience um, or early experiences watching Alexi's work, and then um, what it was like interacting with the work as a writer. Yes. So, as I say in the prologue of the book, I mean, my first uh, experience of his work was The Bright Stream, which came to the Met when the Bolshoi toured to New York in 2005. And at the time, Ratmansky was the director of the Bolshoi, but he was extremely young and very, very few people even knew who he was. I know Robert Greskovic had seen him dance in Denmark, so he knew who he was. But most people, most of us really didn't know who he was. And also in this season of ballets like Don Q and Pharaoh's Daughter, and I can't remember if they did Spartacus that time or not. And then there was this ballet called The Bright Stream. It was like, what the hell is this? You know. Um, <laughs> but I remember Joan told me, you should go see this. And um, nobody had any idea what it would be like. It's a ballet set on a communal farm in, you know, the in this early Soviet period. It's about farmers and artists coming from the big city for the fall festival. And it has this kind of farcical plot with cross-dressing and masks and um, and the music is by Shostakovich. I mean, I think that's the thing that everybody was really intrigued by. It was music by Shostakovich. And everybody knew that Shostakovich's ballets had been banned. So this was really intriguing. What were these ballets that haven't been seen since, you know, the 1930s? So I was there. And the thing that really hit me was, um, oh, there were so many the musicality, the, the, and it was different from Balanchine's musicality. It wasn't analytical. It was this music evokes a certain time period. It was very connected. It was a musicality that was connected to the subject matter. You know, mm -hmm. Balanchine is, goes beyond. It's eternal. It's, you know, 
I mean, there are exceptions, obviously. But with this ballet, it was very connected with the Bolshoi at a certain time in its history, mm-hmm. the Soviet period. Um, so you could feel all of that. And the dancing style was so interesting because it was both very, very beautiful, but it was also tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. You know, it was there was this lightness while at the same time there was this incredible bravura happening happening on stage. But it was bravura that, that they were just sort of throwing off as if there mm-hmm. were nothing. So in Don Q, it was all like, let's, you know, jump as yeah. high as we can. <laughs> but in but in uh, in the Bright Stream, it wasn't that it was bravura tossed off with this incredible sophistication. Mm-hmm. And I think the sophistication was another thing that really struck me. This was obviously the product of a person who had had was of the Soviet world, but had already emerged from it and was looking back on it with knowledge and irony hmm. um and but that was combined with also humanity so you know it was this incredible mix and i think the second ballet that really solidified my impression was russian seasons which he made the very next year because it showed that was a more abstract work it was to much more um challenging music vocal music um it showed that he could be abstract he could be modern he mm-hmm. could and he that he could transform dancers because i knew those dancers and because it was made on new york city ballet mm-hmm. but they looked totally different in his work when did you become interested in the biographical side of romansky and and was it just was that related to you just wanting a deeper knowledge of him as a creator yeah, I mean, first of all, I was just already very, very curious because of Russian seasons, because it seems so different from anything we were seeing here. And I wanted to understand why it was so good. Um, but when he when when it was announced in two, it was announced in 2008, but he joined in 2009 that he was coming to American Ballet Theater. And I found out he was making a new ballet. I thought this is my opportunity to kind of get behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I wrote my first long piece about him. It was for the nation and they gave me lots of words. So I went and watched him in rehearsal and interviewed him. And that's where I discovered what an interesting person he was. Um, I was very intrigued by this combination of reticence, openness, uh, immense ballet knowledge, um, and these references to all sorts of other ballet traditions that he was making. Um, I just realized he was a complex and interesting person. The idea of writing a book about him didn't really come until quite a bit later. I mean, I never thought I would write a book of any kind. But I just think that as the ballets accumulated, I just realized this is an extraordinary artist. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people use superlatives, the greatest, the successor to Balanchine. I don't believe in, in that sort of thing. I just believe that when you are in the vicinity of a really interesting artist, that's something very unique Mm -hmm. and something to be um, appreciated and, 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 and followed, you know? So, so as the ballets accumulated, I just realized here I am, here he is. I have this extraordinary window on his, on his work ABT has always been so generous in allowing me to sit in and watch rehearsals. And not only ABT, he is incredibly um, relaxed about having Mm -hmm. people sitting and watching rehearsal, even when he's having trouble. You know, he doesn't care. It doesn't Mm -hmm. bother him. That's not, I mean, he worked at the Bolshoi, for God's sake. You know, (laughs) a million people in every studio and and problems and all of that. But um, I just realized that he had an openness to my being there. And so I thought, I ha- this, is an, this is a huge wealth of information and of access that I, I really should do something with it. 
And so the idea sort of started percolating in my mind, but it took years. It took years yeah. for me to feel the confidence to say, it was always one day I'll write a book about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, as I'm hearing you talk about this, like that you've seen some of his work and then you start to meet him, talk with him and be in rehearsal. For me and Michael, I'm not sure if it was the same for you. When we worked with him on symphonic dances at Miami City Ballet, I hadn't seen any of his work yet. So my first impressions of him were in the studio and seeing him work. And then and I don't think I got to see the ballet for years later just because we did it. We did it so much, but I didn't get to see it from the front. And so I just wonder, as you're seeing his work first and then you go in because the way he works in the studio is so specific. And maybe you can speak a little bit um, to that, too. How did it shift your perspective of him? Yes. The way he works in the studio, I think, is really extraordinary. And, you know, I've watched a lot of um, choreographers in the studio for different articles I was writing. And I mean, I'm by no I, by no means have I seen everybody. You've seen many more. You've worked with many more. Um, what struck me is combination of factors. One is the way that he works with dancers. Um, the way he comes in with an idea that seems very clear in his mind. And he sets that at the beginning of the rehearsal. And by the end of that rehearsal, those steps have become something completely different. Mm-hmm. Because he works, my best analogy is like a sculptor. Now, first you have a block. Then you have sort of a a recognizable figure, but then that figure through constant, very careful shaving away of facets and um, curves and um, dimensions becomes something so much more complicated and so much more interesting i mean that's the thing about his work it's 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 never neutral or straightforward it has an infinite number of nuances and details yeah to see and he doesn't go ahead and work on the rest he works on that Mm -hmm. you know until the end of that rehearsal and at the end of that rehearsal that little whatever it was it sometimes you you sort of feel like oh oh it became this other thing, you know, it's really, right. it's really, it's, 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 it's very striking. Yeah. The other thing that I was struck by in rehearsal is that he, he'll work little by little on the different parts. He can work under any conditions, it seems like. Yes. Noise, uh, pressure, uh, tired dancers, which is a huge thing. Yeah. Um and you'll be in the studio either with just a few people or with a million people. And his his focus is really powerful. And out of this mess comes some kind of order. Mm-hmm. But not only that, and that's what speaks to the difference between what happens in rehearsal and what you see on stage, is maybe in rehearsal you'd never even see all the parts together. Right. But then what you see on stage is this mosaic that suddenly t- has clarity to it. And you think, oh, that little thingy-mabob that I was seeing, it's over there in the corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody can even see it, but it matters because mm-hmm. everything has complexity. I mean, that's, in a way, he's a very Baroque choreographer. That's kind of how it feels as a dancer too, I think. Like there's so many things that can happen. I'm just thinking like specifically of symphonic dances just because it's what I'm, it's in my memory right now. But there's so many little things that you're doing in the back and then you you can't really see how it comes together until you sit in the audience and you're like, wow, like yeah, that comes yeah. together in a way I didn't even expect, even though I'm on stage every single time doing it. You know, it's just, yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. I remember specifically whipped cream, which I watched most of the process of mm-hmm. and how the dancers were not that excited about the subject matter. They, 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 you know, a ballet called whipped cream sounded silly. And the, the choreography is very rococo and very kind of orchidaceous. And, and people didn't, he, because he's a man of few words, people didn't really know what he was getting at. And then I remember seeing the, the first run through or the second run through of something uh, of everything and people, there was this um, vibration in the room as people realized, 
what was happening in that ballet and how many layers it had and how much was going on at the same time and how actually complex and sophisticated and funny it was. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, something else that you you bring across so well in the book um, that what struck me about Alexei first when I was first working with him is how he can be so quiet and almost shy, but it's so demanding at the same time. You know, we think I think you think of a choreographer getting in the room and yelling at you and and, you know, bossing you around and that's demanding. But there's something it's um, he's insistent upon getting what he wants, but it's in this quiet, almost shy way. And yeah. I think it's it's kind of wild to watch him work in that way. It's just nothing I've ever yeah. seen before. He's shy. He's reticent. He's very polite. I mean, I always love seeing the way he approaches dancers in a rehearsal. Um, you know, there's so much, there's so much worry about you know the relationship between choreographers and dancers but when he's going to touch someone because he just hasn't been able to communicate what he wanted he'll say it and he'll kind of approach already with his hand extended so that they know what's about to happen mm-hmm. and it, he touches with the very tips of the fingers so that there you know there's this this mm. this t- great respect and care for not um impinging on people's Mm -hmm. space at the same time what he's asking of them is enormous Mm -hmm. (laughs) almost impossible seemingly impossible actually and this goes back to what I was saying about rehearsals there are things when he sees someone do something and he sees that they can do more because they just did that he always asks for more and when they do more he thinks well maybe they could do more (laughs) so there is he's he's very very the word is demanding yes and um insistent and sure well not sure he has doubts he has doubts and there are things that don't work out Mm -hmm. um but he keeps asking and asking and asking um and i think you know it's a combination of his faith in dancers because he knew himself that there were things that people didn't think he could do and that he mm. pushed and pushed until he could do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he sees something very clear in his head, I mean, he told me even when he was a kid that when he heard music, he saw a television screen in his in his mind. And so mm. there is something so definite in his head that he wants to reach that. You know, it's right. not like, oh, let's see what we can do. And then the personality is one that, and he was already like this as a child. I mean, he told me how he would put on these shows at the Bolshoi school and his friends would say yes, but then they would go off and do something else. And he would go and get them and bring them into the studio (laughs) because to him, it was already really important. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, he's completely focused on what he, what he does. And, And people, because of that, have always sort of, done it mm-hmm. one of his friends from Bolshoi school Natalia Ledovskaya said for some reason we just did it mm-hmm. Funny. Yeah. hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk some about your your process and putting the book together. 
um, outside of, of course, your own interactions with the ballets, which I'm sure you viewed many, many times in, you know, in person and on video, um, just to capture your thoughts on who he is as an artist. I'm sure there were things, uh, places you visited or like artifacts from his life that you got to view. Um, tell us about that part of the process. Yeah. I mean, the book was an extraordinary adventure. Um, I didn't quite realize how I would be pulled into his world. Um, but when I started, I knew I wanted to find to talk to people from his childhood and from his training and the different people he had spoken to and worked with over time. And I think my idea was, and this is also why I wanted to do the book at this point in his life when he's still young, is I wanted the people that he worked with as a child to be able to tell me themselves what he had been like. Mm -hmm. I wanted to gather those stories, um, you know, before these people were no longer around. So I was very lucky. I was able to go to Russia twice before that became impossible um, because of the war. I went to Kiev as well and uh, spoke at great length with his parents and with his sister and with his director at the National Ballet of Ukraine at the time that he was there and his ballet mistress. Um, I got to see where he grew up in Kiev, in in this outlying neighborhood. I got to see the opera house um, and uh, the archivist there um, took me through the archives and showed me photographs. I mean, the whole thing was surreal and unbelievably valuable. Mm. Um, And one of the things that I mean, there were all these little aha moments, you know, and one was see, going to the uh, Chernobyl Museum in Kiev. You know, I know about Chernobyl. I had read about Chernobyl. You know, I saw the I saw the series. <laughs> <laughs> we lived. Through, I you didn't live through it, but I lived through it. I had friends who had been in Belarus at the time, but going to the museum and seeing these photographs of the red forest and of the after effects and then talking to Rotmansky's parents about what it would had been like to live through that period yeah i realized what a it's in his subconscious but mm-hmm. what a formative experience that had been the fear the unreality of it all and i also realized something very specific which was that his firebird bears traces mm. of that you know right. i mean this his firebird is said in a post-apocalyptic landscape mm-hmm. and when i talked to with these sort of glowing trees and putrid looking spaces and when i talked to him about it we talked about everything except chernobyl mm-hmm. but when i went to the museum i realized there was a connection there and so then i called his um set designer and he said oh yeah we talked about Chernobyl we talk about the red forests so so there was this connection there that absolutely no one had made and I hadn't made and I never would have made and that he didn't tell me about so there are things you (laughs) there are things you find and then when I told him he's like oh yeah yeah I guess so you know but right (laughs) but it's it's there Uh um and then another one was going to the Bolshoi school in Moscow and seeing this place and realizing what a transformative experience and how that building, which is a block, a huge block large, it's circular, it's totally self-contained, is an absolute world Mm -hmm. for the students. They come in, they're children, they come out, they're dancers. You know, it's really, it's, it's something I'd, don't think exists maybe the Paris Opera School I don't know but it's something very very particular about that place yeah yeah I was just thinking towards the end of the book and it's um Lexi's mother just kind of she says you know he she says she doesn't even finish her sentence or she just says you know he was so young and then it just kind of you know drip drops off like you just I think (gasps) you don't even yeah it's just such a yeah you're sending your child off and then that's it they're gonna 
they're transformed after. Which she, yeah, when she told me that it um it it actually made me cry a little bit because meeting his parents, they're the most wonderful people, and that also explained a lot about his character. The um, the fact that he's a quite a positive person, quite a soft spoken person. I mean, partly that's just his character, but partly it's his parents. He comes from a very loving family and very sweet family and very supportive family. And the idea that they let this little 10-year-old boy leave for Moscow, which was 10 hours away by train. And, you know, it's not like they never saw him again, but his life happened elsewhere Mm -hmm. from that moment on. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that for his parents... They even could grasp what was happening. Um, And so when she looked in my eyes, and this was through a a translator, obviously, but somehow I found out that you can talk to someone through a translator and even and still feel like you're speaking to them directly. Mm -hmm. Um, As she said this to me, she held my hands as we were at the door. I was about to leave Kiev and I thought, oh, my God, I I better write a good book because (laughs) she deserves it. (laughs) Oh, so nice. I wonder um, what was it? the conversation like with Ratmansky, like when you approached him and you said, I want to write this book, what did he say? And then how were you, how did you guys work together on this project? So when I first approached him, it was after I saw Serenade after a symposium. It was after Serenade after Plato's symposium. Mm -hmm. And I, I was very excited by that work and I felt like he'd hit a new kind of level of sophistication in his work. And I, I very, you know, uncharacteristically wrote him an email, you know, at one in the morning. He's also a, a night owl just saying, you know, one day I'd really like to write a book about you. Would you be willing to, you know, take part in such an enterprise? Um, and he wrote, I can't remember exactly, but very short immediately because he was up also working on something saying, sure. And so then the wheels really started turning. Right. Um, And so then we had a real conversation because then I talked to some people to see if there was really a possibility. You know, you never know if if there's a a place for a a book like this. So I talked to a few people and it really seemed like there was an interest. Um, And so then I sat down with him and I said, we had a real conversation about it. Um, And I said, you know, this is going to be a pain. If if I do this, it will be a pain. It will take up time. It will, you know, I'll be around a lot. Um, <laughs> are you willing to to tolerate that? I mean, I totally understand if you're not, and and we'll just drop it there. And his answer was sure, but who would want to read a book like this? <laughs> <laughs> he was very oh. puzzled by the whole idea. Everyone. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I have a feeling there are some people who might want to read it. And actually, I gave him a copy of Joan's book about Mark Morris, because at the time that was my model, because mm-hmm. she had written a book about him when he was quite young, a, quite a young choreographer. Uh, and people had wondered why write about someone when they're in the midst of their career rather than later. But I, I thought this is why, because Joan's book about Mark really captures who he was as a child and his and his family situation and, you know, all the influences. Um, so he said, fine. He said, OK, I don't. And I also said, I, you know, in order to do a good job, I really need to this to be an independent thing. You know, I will I want to interview you, but but it's not an approved biography and you wouldn't have approval mm-hmm. of the final copy is that okay with you i of course will let you see it and then we can go over factual problems and and he said fine you know how he is yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like all right very very hands off mm-hmm. but what i yeah. got at that moment was the reassurance that he was willing to kind of sit there and be uh you know interviewed and 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 what I discovered was he's a man of his word. You know, if he says he's going to do something, he does it. Mm-hmm. And so even though he's very difficult to keep up with because he's constantly on the move, he 
really allowed me total freedom. You know, can I come to Russia and watch you work with the Bolshoi dancers when you're setting Romeo and Juliet on them? Sure. Can I, you know, can, can I, you know, I watched him work in many different places and it was always, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't hands-on in any way, but he was, but he gave me something much more valuable, which was total access, let's say. Right. And then in conversations, I think he began with a certain shyness about talking about himself. It's not something he's used to. But I found that over time, those conversations became longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I would come with a million questions. We'd get through, a, you know, some of them. Uh, and he would, he was just so frank. If you ask him, he will tell you exactly what he thinks. He doesn't pussyfoot or try to hide things. Um, and so those conversations also just became much more wide ranging. And I sensed, I may be completely wrong, that he enjoyed them as well because he enjoyed talking about his work mm-hmm. uh, at length in a way that he had never done at least in to that extent before and so they so the conversations became more and more interesting Hmm. yeah you know something i think is so such an integral part of the book and what what made me love it right away was the way that you are assembling his his life experiences in a way that helps you to understand just where all of his influences are coming from like sure on a piece of you know in my mind i knew of course, that he had been at the Royal Danish Ballet, so he's going to have influence there and, you know, had danced in Canada and, of course, trained in Russia. But you kind of just very um, meticulously put all those pieces together in a way where you're just like, oh, well, this is why he is the choreographer he is. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about what each of those periods meant and how, I guess, maybe how long you were going to devote to each one, how, how big of a a piece of the puzzle it is in his mind as a choreographer. Talk talk a little bit about that. That's something I really wanted to do in the book because I saw so many traces of so many different dance traditions. But I, but like you, I, I sort of, I, I could just see the surface of it, but I, right. I didn't know how he had experienced them in his dancing and in his intellect. And I think that um, going to these places and talking to him about these traditions, I realized just how much of a researcher and assembler he is because he really loves ballet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He truly loves ballet. And so that means that he's a kind of, self-appointed researcher about ballet in in all of its forms. And one of the things that really illuminated that was the way he approached learning about Danish ballet. And that I really found out through him, through conversations with him, but even more going to Denmark, talking to Eric Oshengreen, who, alas, has recently died, the most wonderful dance historian of the Danish tradition, um, talking to Gudrun Boyesen, who was in the company with him at the time, talking to Thomas Lund, and hearing about, and Anne Middlebow, who's a critic in, in Denmark, hearing about how he came not just to dance, but to learn about Bornoville. Mm-hmm. And I think that before I went there, I didn't realize what an influence that had had on him in many aspects. I mean, he was there for seven years. They were the final years of his dancing life. Um, it was like the end of his dance education a little mm-hmm. bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he went and he wanted to learn how to dance Bornemville. And it's really hard if you're not trained in that tradition. And he's Russian. He was trained in a tradition that was almost the opposite of the casualness of, right. of the Danish style. He was muscular. He was all about attack, you know. 
And so he went to Eric Oshengreen, who was at the university then, and asked him, "Let's, can you talk to me about balance about Bournemouthville? Mm-hmm. Can you give me, tell me what to read? Can you show me prints? Can you mm-hmm. lend me videos?" And he really researched it, like you know, like a graduate student, um, mm-hmm. and took all the Bournemouthville classes at the company. He took mm-hmm. every Bournemouth, and and I remember he told me that the Danish dancers were rather bored with the Bournemouthville classes, but he was obsessed with the Bournemouthville classes, and he. You know, he learned and learned and learned and worked and worked and worked. And he never got to be, somebody told me that he never got to be a great Bournemouth dancer, but he was a, quite a nice Bournemouth dancer. This was a Dane, a Dane who said that, and quite uh-huh. a nice Bournemouth dancer is like <laughs> the highest form of praise. He did, he get to, get, get to dance James just once, but mm-hmm. on tour. He had danced it before, but to dance it with the Royal Danes was a, a very big deal. And Gudrun told me that he would sit and watch performances and rehearsals of Napoli and other ballets. He'd say, look at that pas de trois. It's incredible. Hmm. And Gudrun would look at it and she'd be like, oh, yeah, I've been dancing that my whole life. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and then eventually when he started making his ballets, um, like Torondo's Dream for, for their company and then later The Bright's Dream, she saw little snippets mm-hmm. of Bournemouthville. Mm-hmm. And she also saw, um, and this was a wonderful detail, in the Bright Stream, there are those two kind of dopey um, peasants. Well, they're not peasants. They, they own a dasha. They're called the dasha dwellers. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they're this, these comic bumbling characters. And she said that was straight out of, the Danish tradition of of mime, and it right. was a. And he told me. Then I asked him about it. It was a tribute to Kirsten Simone, who is a who was a great Danish ballerina who later became a character dancer, and who's still alive and living in Denmark. I met with her as well. Um, so these things aren't mm. just theoretical, right? They're real, right? <laughs> yeah. And you, they're actually it, the steps are actually there. Yeah, right. I wonder how much now that you've really like you, you're saying you traveled with him when he was working at different companies, you are so well versed in that. Now, I wonder how your perspective has changed on seeing him dance with different companies. Like you're talking about, he comes into the studio and he's like, this is what I want to do. And then it evolves into something else. How is it evolving for balancing trained dancers versus versus Bourneville influences? Yeah, I didn't travel with him. I traveled independently and met up <laughs> oh, where he was sorry you were there when he was <laughs> yes. there right <laughs> um, I'd be like where are you going to be making a ballet okay and I'd buy I'll be my there tickets. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very important distinction um yeah. <laughs> he I what I noticed was a remarkable consistency in his work with different companies I think the difference I noticed with New York City ballet dancers was that he they are when he they do did I mean I haven't seen rehearsals recently but when they did his movement in rehearsal there was something it was they gave it a spin already that was Balanchine Balanchinian mm-hmm. and he would work with that mm-hmm. you know he would he would and I think he does this with every company but maybe because born uh, balance Balanchine and Bournemouth. <laughs> the bees. The bees. Um, I think it's because the, the Balanchine style is something he's so excited by. It it comes out even more in his choreography. But what I notice working with other companies is that he takes what he sees in front of him and he just works it to mold what what's in front of him. Right. And also an infinite patience. I mean, as you said at the beginning, Michael, this this desire to see something very specific and working towards it is always there. But he will, it works at, at different speeds with different dancers and with different traditions. Mm-hmm. And for example, working with the Bolshoi, I noticed there was more, 
I'm not going to say resistance, but they had to come from a much farther away to get to his style. Gotcha. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the patience, the patience, the repetition, the cajoling, the quiet, the showing, always the showing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that he does in every company and that I think there's no better interpreter of his movement style than himself. Yeah. Even now. Um, the, he can show a phrase and you understand the musicality, the accents, the size of the movement, the, what is more important, the emphasis, all this stuff. So he would, and he, I mean, I don't know how he gets through a day because the amount of energy he puts out in, in a rehearsal and he'll do eight hours of rehearsal. Um, he'll show and show and show and show. And that happened in every setting that I saw. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably, you know, the same when he was 20. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, gosh, just, the way he shows, uh, it's just, mm-hmm. we we all loved to, to, to talk about it because it was just, it was so beautiful. I mean, sometimes you could get caught, <laughs> caught up in just watching him and be like, oh, wait, I have an assignment here. I'm supposed right. to be emulating. <laughs> but it was just, it's so wild how, you know, how how many years into retirement uh, from the stage is he? And yet it's just the scale and the specificity and you immediately know what is expected of you. And yet it feels impossible. You know, like uh, dancers that are at, at their own peaks. Like I, I, I'm friendly with Isabella Boylston and we talk about him often where it's just like she she is a principal ballerina with American Ballet Theater and, and can do everything. And she'll just look at it and go like, what? you know um yeah and you can see the vocabulary streaming through him you know you can see that he danced Jerry Killian you can see that he danced Balanchine you can see even that he danced Bejar because he that sort of big opulent upper body stuff um you can see in the footwork that he danced uh, Bournonville. You can see in the strong back that he comes from the Russian tradition. You know, right. it's all it's like this um, alphabet soup in his yeah. in his body. Yeah. One thing well, I'm curious about. Oh, I have, I have a question about ahead, the name ahead. of the book. I was wondering yeah. how you got to the name of the book um, and if that maybe changed in recent years. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't the original title. Um, the original title was, I, I worked really hard to find a title. It's a very difficult thing. I bet. Yeah. Um, this was one of the names that was one of the titles that was in the mix, Mm -hmm. but nobody really liked it. It's like, boy, I don't know. It's a little, maybe a little cheesy. So I came up with a very dignified title. It was very dignified, very, you know, neutral. And it's like, oh, this is a serious book. Mm-hmm. And then the war started. And then I saw what a cataclysmic event this was um, for him, for his family, for the world, for for Ukraine. Um and it brought to the fore a theme that I had been really thinking about from the be- from the beginning, which was who, who is he, Ratmansky? Where is he from? What is his what is his origin story, as people like to say, or what is right. his identity? And I had always had a little bit of trouble pinpointing it because, for many reasons. And I think he had had trouble pinpointing it as well. You know, when I would ask him, so do you feel Russian? Do you feel Ukrainian? The answers Mm -hmm. were always a little, a little murky. And I, and I I realized, you know, he was a Soviet, a Soviet man. He was a post-Soviet man. He was a, you know, he didn't have a home, blah, blah, blah. But then the war made everything very, very, very clear. Mm-hmm. The pain he felt was very specific. The the who mattered to him in his life became very very clear. And I realized at that moment that it had always in a way been clear because when he went to the Bolshoi school uh 
at 10 years old, so 1978, um, it was still the Soviet period. He was known at the school as the boy from Kiev. So mm. this was already a label that was put, being put on him that was, you're here, you're great, you're lovely, but you're from somewhere else. Right. Mm. Um, it was a term of endearment also, but mm -hmm. it was a mixed term of, of endearment. And in fact, when he graduated, he was expected to go back to Kiev, mm -hmm. which to them meant like the provinces. You mm -hmm. know, you go back there, go dance with your, you know, your other Ukrainian dancers. And um, and so there was an othering there right. that and at the time he felt very disappointed. Oh, I have to go back to Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. But what became clear with the war is that that was very intentional in the Soviet period. You know, Russia tried to and successfully managed to um, obscure people's sense of nationality mm -hmm. because Russia was really what mattered and Moscow mattered and St. Petersburg right. mattered. So everything else was kind of out there. It's the provinces, you know. Right. And so I felt suddenly that that little tidbit from school was actually really, really significant. Mm -hmm. And I realized that had to be the title. Yeah. You know, I didn't, it wasn't really like I had to choose. It was, that was the title. And now when I look back, I think it couldn't have been anything else. When he posted on Instagram the other day about the book, he commented on the title and it seemed based on, I don't have it in front of me, but it seemed like it made, it meant a lot to him that that was the title, which yeah. made me curious about how it came to be. Yeah. I mean, I didn't tell him when I was going to change it. Um, I did make some changes uh, mm -hmm. after after the war started and after it was uh, announced that he was going to New York City Ballet. I went back and I just kind of gently um, thought about everything. Mm -hmm. right. um, but when I changed the title, I didn't ask him or tell him. Mm -hmm. But I am very happy that he that it means something to him. Yeah. I got it right. Yay. Yes. <laughs> so, of course, we hope all of our listeners go out and get the book. Where should they where should we be buying the book? Where would you like us to buy the book? Well, of course, you know, your local bookstore is always the best place to buy a book. Um, but you can it can be bought from the Macmillan website. It can be bought from Amazon, um, you know, all of the chains or whatever it's it's out yeah. there so um we're gonna put a link in the description of this episode so that people can get it because we really hope that everyone will and dive in it's just it's so wonderful and we're you. so happy I really to hear appreciate about it. it i really yeah. appreciate it and you know one last thing i really feel like in in great part i wrote it for the dancers mm -hmm. because there are mm -hmm. so many dancers who have done his work and who are, who love doing his work and you don't have time in the studio for these conversations right you know why why did you do it this way why why does it look like this where did you come from there's no time for that in the studio so i think that for dancers it's um an opportunity to kind of lift the veil and understand this person that they work with a little bit better that's exactly that's exactly how I felt. Yeah, it was just it's illuminating an artist that I already loved and appreciated so much. But um, yeah, I feel like the next time I see one of Alexi's ballets, I'll just be it'll be I'll love it even more. So oh, thank wonderful. you for that, Marina. I was I telling really Michael that it. having the credits in the back of ballets that we were in, that we like were a part of the origination of felt so cool. It's like being in a history book or something. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> I hadn't know? even thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. it felt really yeah. like there was a little piece of us and names in there that we knew. And it said, uh, and ensemble, which is us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That took so much time. Can I just tell you? Oh, I oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> when they told me, could you do a chronology? I was like, oh, oh really? <laughs> I actually was thinking that I was wondering if he had all that available to you and was just like, here, no, no. <laughs> I mean, he did help, especially with the really early works that there was no record of, right. of the names and stuff. But no, I mean, how could I have um, impinged on his time in that way to be like, OK, right. and who was the original right, right, right. in this ballet? No, right, no. Right. I did. 90% of the footwork myself. And then I did get help from, from yeah. different people who, who 
were like, oh, this other person was in the ballet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. And from him, he did help me at the end. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marina. And we hope you're taking a big victory lap this week because yeah. it, it's I'm such writing a, great a few book. articles, so not exactly. <laughs> back, <laughs> back to, to reality. All right. Well, well, we'll get you back on the pod for your next book for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you us. guys so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Marina. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.